Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. Deep inside our first reality TV presidency, one designed, whether you like the policy or not, to squeeze maximum drama from every encounter. It's almost hard to remember that the Obama presidency was 180 degrees the opposite. It was built on the idea of no drama. In the current context, it may look almost dull, professional, competent, and the apogee of the work of hundreds whose life effort was to serve the country and leave it a better place than they found it. That's why perhaps now more than ever, we need the bracing reminder of what competency, rational decision-making, and hard work were really like in the exercise of government. My guest, Brian Abrams, does this in his comprehensive new oral history of the Obama administration. Many years ago, the late Studs Terkel first taught me the importance of interviews as oral history. During these many years, I've taken many of you with me on this journey. I look at these conversations and the kind of interviews that Brian Abrams has done for this book as pieces of long-form journalism. The interviews are a sort of drift net for catching ideas and knowledge and stretching them out through time and space in ever-widening spools. It's an important historical contribution, and Brian Abrams does it well. Brian Abrams is the author of three best-selling oral histories, an oral history of Late Night with David Letterman, a history of Gawker, and an oral history of Die Hard. He's written for the Washington Post magazine, Time, and numerous other publications, and it is my pleasure to welcome Brian Abrams here to talk about Obama, an oral history, 2009 to 2017. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me on the show. A delight to have you here. Talk a little bit about the lens through which you began to have these conversations with, with folks in the Obama administration. Obviously, when you started working on this, and, and, and it obviously took a bunch of time, when you started working on it, the presidency and, and the Washington was a different place than it is today. Talk about how those external events shaped the kind of conversations that you had and your reaction to them. Yeah, that's a good question, and uh, I'm glad you asked it. It, it. it does, you know, it connects to kind of your opening monologue, which... I wanted to respond to also. Um, it's it's interesting how, you know, when I when I began this book um, in the spring of 2016, it took me roughly year and a half, two years to conduct. Say, I think about 112 people ended up on the record, something like that. Um, when the book began, or the, the process of writing the book, I was. You know, we were all assuming that we had a Hillary Clinton presidency ahead of us, so. You know, for you, and I'm not, uh, I'm not blaming you for this at all. It makes perfect sense. But the way in which you frame uh, the book is interesting to me. That you know, we that we look back now on this administration with rose-colored glasses, and and uh, you know, you, you use words like competency, or um, you know, you have this sort of sense of um, an appreciation or a renewed appreciation for public service, that sort of stuff. Like mm-hmm. I actually, I wasn't really thinking along those lines when I put it together. I wanted to put together just a book that could objectively analyze, you know, what, what went down, um, you know, mistakes, achievements, both. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wasn't trying to embrace, you know, anything warm and fuzzy necessarily. Uh, but I see your point now. I mean, it's obviously we have a kleptocratic regime in, in office now, so there's no contest. But um, but I don't know if that actually answers your second well, part of your question. But right. I, it's, inter- you know. it's interesting to think about the book, though, 
if if Hillary Clinton had been elected and we were in the midst of a Clinton presidency with whatever whatever it came with, we'd be looking back on this in a different way. It would really be through a different lens, arguably. Maybe, maybe not. And I think about that a lot because if you think about the disruption uh, for the working class now, whether that means you know the sort of highly you know, whether that means like the Rust Belt Brexit, which gets constant, you know, media attention, or whether that means, you know, the millions of people whose homes were foreclosed over the last decade, you know, just people that were really hurting, um, like that, that, that populist anger still would have been there. And it still would have been, well, in the case, in the case of a Hillary Clinton presidency, I would imagine still would have been very much in the hands of a Fox News to sort of rile up and, mm-hmm. Um, I think that when you consider that, like, it's not like that would have gone away, right? Because it was such a tight race for 2016. Like, Hillary could have won, but she didn't. Um, Let's say that she did. That anger would have been there, and then that would have meant that there would have been this constant retrospective about mistakes made. Uh, You know, like the forgotten man narrative would have still been there. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, now we're just... Yeah, now we're seeing it in just like a, a whole other light. You're like you're saying it's just a more extreme. It's a more extreme version, right? And and I suppose the broader framework and in, in, in looking back at this or trying to, is the story that arguably uh, some think is apocryphal when Nixon went to China for the first time and was sitting with Chow and Lai. And they started talking about the disruption in 1968, and they had this conversation about the French Revolution. And Nixon asked Chow and Lai what he thought the, the impact was of the French Revolution. And Chow and Lai turned to him and said, well, it's too soon to know. And it really <laughs> spoke to this long arc of history that we have to look at all of this through. Yeah, it's true. Uh, you know, I, I mean, for all of us, and I'm, I'm obviously guilty, as guilty as anyone, for all of us that... Uh, you know, want to kind of uh, to, to talk about legacies, right? The, maybe the, the legacy that is Obama's, mm-hmm. or if that's what you were kind of driving at, or or the legacy that maybe needs to be corrected and talk about. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm obviously in those conversations every day. And, uh, you know, I even talked to, like, White House staffers, even after the book, just kind of on background, even over drinks, just sort of what they think. And, you know, you get answers all over the spectrum. Um, and, and yet it is true that like, how, how can we really gauge until, you know, how much, you know, until what, another 10 years pass if we're still around. Right. (laughs) In, In all of these conversations, when you look back on them all, were there any consistent themes or narratives that, that kind of pulled it all together for you? That, that they may have been subtle with some people, less so with others, but things, ideas, threads that ran throughout. I mean, there are, there are several. I mean, you know, it's, it's when you think of like the different groups of people that went to work for the administration and there's just like these multiple classes of people, you, you know, you have, you have like, I mean, multiple. So like on, on the one level, I mean, I, this is just sort of a part, this is a partial answer because that's a huge question. But, but you, I think of like the bright eyed post-college, you know, young men and women who went to work for Obama as if they were going on a Grateful Dead tour, you know, like Howard Dean didn't quite see that, like that, that cult level, you know, um, during his campaign. Um, you know, so, so you see that and, and these are like, 
you know, these are well-educated, uh, do-gooder, well-intended kids who just to this day will still continue to sort of act as uh, evangelists for, you know, the Obama White House. I think then you also have, like, veterans that have been around the block once or twice, and, uh, you know, they maybe maybe they cynically played from the Clinton playbook a little too much, and mm. that attributed to that sort of, like, quote, you know, betrayal or that sort of more centrist... Uh, uh, maneuvering that we saw in the White House, um, you know, and then there, there probably were a few that just didn't enjoy working there. Again, this was a partial answer. Mm-hmm. Was there a difference, as you saw it from through these conversations, in Obama's first term versus his second term? You know, we look at Reagan, for example, and there was a clear demarcation in the first Reagan term versus the second. Did you find anything similar with respect to Obama? Yeah, I mean, there are multiple themes that you can look at as far as what the contrast from his first and second term, right? I mean, the, 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 well, the, the most obvious thing that jumps out at me is uh, the fact that the Democratic Party had congressional uh, control in the first two years of the first term. And so that, you know, so you, so you, you largely think of the first term as, you know, this sort of legislative story um, and, and, you know, the things that were successful and that were not um, and a much more intense period. I mean, you, we could break it down even further, right, and say the first two years of the, of the, it was just the first two years where there was just that legislative action taken. And then the second two years in that first term were just kind of this really looking back, it's, it's surreal that you see Obama, you know, get caught up in this, uh, and these fights over deficits and debts, which on one part was him just trying to be, uh, you know, the grown-up in the room, uh, working against this obstructionist Republican caucus. And also I think you had people like Bill Daly and, 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 and David Pluff, senior advisors, that were pushing him to really lean into this idea of deficit cutting and this idea that they were chasing this, like, swing voter who was interested in that sort of thing. Um, I mean, the second term is... is is, is largely different than that, you know. And talk about how the second term is different and how the focus was different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say a couple things that, that jump out at me. I feel like there were factors in the public sphere that had the White House sort of... Uh, turn up the volume on its response to, say, um, racial tensions and criminal justice reform. There was a lot of work that was done in the, in the first term for criminal justice reform, like the Fair Sentencing Act is the first thing that comes to mind, it's sort of this idea of, uh, of equaling the ratio of, of sentencing for drug possession between crack and cocaine, which the Reagan administration had unfairly uh, sort of set in place. Uh, but, you, but I also think about, you know, Obama's speech at uh, the El Reno prison in Oklahoma, like the first, first speech in, done by a sitting president at a penitentiary, and, and you begin to see more attention paid to how he commuted uh, more sentences of inmates than I think something near a 1,000, and that's more than the last three presidents before him put together. Uh, so, so that's something you see. I think you also see a lot in like the, in the, the sort of international diplomacy 
uh, sphere, whether it's Burma, opening Burma and, and Cuba and, and uh, you know, the Iran deal and the Paris Accord, and, and you get kind of an international uh, spotlight. Given that there's been so much focus since Trump's been in the White House on kind of destroying Obama's legacy, do you think that there was more willingness on the part of so many of these people that you talked to to really talk about what really went on and to really give people a clearer sense of Obama than they might mm-hmm. otherwise have? They were always difficult to meet up with or to get on the phone. Um, not because they are difficult people as individuals, a lot of them are actually really delightful, but because, um, well, I mean, I think everyone has their own reasons, but, you know, some of them were just busy writing their own books. Right. But, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, you said go Oh, okay. But, but, but I think that, uh, you know, a number of them may have been protective of, of their work and their legacy, and a lot of them are, you know, I, I really tried my best to avoid speaking with people who were in the communications shop. I wanted to talk to policy people. I wanted to talk to people who were kind of in the room when the sausage was made, for lack of a better metaphor. And, uh, you know, who knows? These are just people that aren't necessarily, not necessarily, uh, you know, used to talking to press and who is this guy we've never heard of doing this book and so forth. So, um, so it was always difficult. And mind you, since the interviews were done over, you know, this year and a half period, now, some I spoke with multiple times before Hillary's election, or excuse me, before Trump's election and after Trump's election, um, and some I did not. So, so you know, you, you're getting, it's true, you're getting like sort of this, this rainbow of attitudes in the book, mm-hmm. depending on when I spoke with them. What was a sense that you came away with the degree to which race was constantly an issue? both in the presidency and in the reaction to, to some of the events that took place in the country, whether it was Trayvon Martin or, or others, that, that, that clearly that issue was always there, sometimes at the forefront, sometimes in the back. Talk about what mm-hmm. your sense of that was. Um, well, I would say a couple things. I would say first, it's, it's really funny how uh, there's two white men on this podcast talking about race. But uh, I, would, I would also say that there was a quote from Ron Davis who ran the uh, COPS initiative out of the Justice Department. Um, and so he, you know, he sort of headed up the police community relations um, you know, in the wake of yeah, when you had uh, several of these events you know, being captured on cell phone of, of uh, police violence. Uh, and let me read it to you right now. I think sure. I have it pulled up right here. Um, and I, I do have my own opinion as well, but I think Ron's is more important. Um, some people say that race relations got worse under President Obama. And I thought, as an African-American, that's just completely false. It's like the old thing on, quote, men don't like to go to doctors. You go to the doctor, and the doctor says, hey, you got stage four cancer. And you come out saying, I was okay until I saw the doctor. You were not even close to being okay. You just didn't know. So the president didn't create the tension. Circumstances in his leadership pulled the Band-Aid off of the wound that was not healing. Um, There's since been a study that has shown that uh, racial tensions did spike. There was a book written about this recently, that that racial tensions did spike uh, at 2008, um, just for the mere fact that the president was black. Um, You know, I think it's, I mean, for me personally, uh, you know, I know... 
every day we have this talk about this racist president that we have now and this sort of white supremacist agenda on part of the Republican Party, whether it be for immigration or for, uh, you know, sort of these uh, uh, kind of ruthless decisions made under HUD or at, at Health and Human Services, take your pick. But, um, you know, it, it's important to remember, too, that under the Obama administration, it was no picnic. We were still living in a white supremacist society then, too. Mm-hmm. Was there a difference in terms of willingness to talk and, and, and the way they viewed the Obama presidency, talking to people that were involved on the foreign policy side versus the domestic policy and political side? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, what was the name of the, uh, the test that Captain Kirk had to cheat in order to win <laughs> in Wrath of Khan? The co- the, do you remember the Kobayashi Maru? I don't. So in, in Wrath of Khan, some of your some of your listeners may know that Kobayashi, Kobayashi Maru test was this sort of uh, pilot exam for the you know for the Federation where you know they had to get themselves out of this like tough spot and there was just and the program was uh, sort of set to where it was impossible for you to beat it and the only way Captain Kirk could beat it was by cheating. But, uh, you know, I, I often think about that when I think of, you know, uh, sort of what Obama had inherited from the mess in the Middle East. Um, you know, he certainly didn't make it better. You see instances of him, you know, putting troops in. You see instances of him not putting troops in. You see instances of him trying airstrikes and, and like, everything. It just looking back and this is way too broad of an answer, which isn't fair, but it just seems like everything was a fail. And, uh, you know, to which would a McCain presidency or a Romney presidency have gotten any of those decisions any better? I, I have no idea. This is not my expertise, obviously. But, you know, there's definitely a um, – I think there's definitely just a darker feeling about all of that versus, say, um, getting 20 million Americans – Healthcare that didn't have healthcare before, or catalyzing a renewable energies industry, you know, which are a little more positive notes. Or, or in the very early days, turning the economy around. Yeah, that's true. You know, there's this quote that's funny. I mean, there's this quote from I can't remember which book I read it in. I know I'm supposed to be talking about my own, but. Uh, it, 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 the expression is something along the lines of uh, when you when you drive through a neighborhood, you you never see a sign for cats that aren't missing. Um, it's true that you know the Great Recession uh, has had hurt millions of us, and it took years for recovery. It obviously was a successful recovery. It just took forever. Um, you know there are arguments to be made about could there things have been done to. Uh, make it recover faster. We can talk about that, sure. But generally speaking, it's, yeah, it's hard to, to give credit to something that we know didn't happen. So, it, yeah, but I, I do feel like that is part of the Obama legacy to talk about uh, the Great Depression that never was um, and how close we were to that. Um, and, yeah, so, so I'm glad you brought that up. What were the regrets that you heard repeatedly? What were some of the things that people wished had been different? Uh, Medicare for all. 
that's the first thing that comes to mind. I think about people that I spoke with in the White House and in the Senate, and some of this didn't make it in the book just for editing purposes, and some of it was just conversation on background, but uh, it's certainly, I mean, this message is in the part of the story, it is in the book, but, you know, this idea that even in the summer of 2009, when everyone was fully aware of this Republican obstructionist strategy, uh, to you know, at a level that had never been seen before, that... You know, there still was a belief that the Senate could get 60 votes on a comprehensive health care reform bill, that maybe someone like a Mike Enzi of Wyoming or you could get an Olympia Snow in Maine or someone, you know, some of these people in the uh, in the finance committee that they could have got on board, but could have gotten 60 votes. And, uh, you know, obviously that's not true. That never was going to happen. And, you know, there are people that recognize that a sort of Medicare for all single payer bill should have just been done under reconciliation then and called it a day. And it would have been all that much more harder for a Trump administration to try to repeal in 2016 or 2017, rather. So much is always written about that there's no real preparation for the presidency, even among those that come to it with, with certainly more experience than Obama did and, and, and a lot of the people around him. Was there a sense, a certain tipping point that you found when they all felt that, that they had their sea legs, that it was really, for better or for worse, operating as well as it could? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is in the book in several spots. I mean, several scenes you do see. I, I mean, I think about January 20th, you, you have this sense of even though, if this is what you're referring to, that, that even though in, in 2008, you know, there was a campaign that had a, a fully loaded transition team and they had their policy papers and they had, you know, uh, they had a number of experienced people. Uh, you know, you're still talking about hundreds of staffers who all have responsibilities and, you know, they enter the White House and they find their, their cubicle and the phone's already ringing on day one. And, and, and there is just this sort of like feeling of, okay, we're going to have to learn as we go. And it's remarkable that that seems to happen every single time. Um, and I suppose it's at that point, it's just a test of the intelligence and competency and a little bit of luck on, on each administration to, to how they perform. Right. And, and often so impacted by outside forces. It's like the old story about going into a prize fight, that you can have the best game plan in the world until the first punch lands. Right. Oh, it's true. I mean, you think about... It's true. I mean, you think about... I know, I know Obama people think about this. That like, what if... You know, what if the uh, Wall Street fraudsters didn't uh, rob millions of people of, you know... Uh, of their of their uh, mortgages, you know. What if uh, the the markets didn't crash and there wasn't this giant hole in the economy? And and what sort of agenda could have been set in place instead of what we saw? I mean, that's that's an impossible what if because this was obviously a crisis that was building for years upon years under the sort of unregulated uh, policies of George Bush and and Bill Clinton too. Um, and so. You are, as, and again, it kind of goes back to what I was saying, as much as you want to like get into the weeds and criticize decisions that were made by the part of the Obama administration for their uh, recovery from the recession, I mean, there's no question that you're, you're certainly kind of grateful for them to respond as they 
did in comparison to what you might imagine a McCain administration would have done mm-hmm. or not done. Finally, Brian, talk a little bit about your own sense of, of contribution to the historical record by doing this book. Yeah. Ooh. That's pretty haughty for me. I mean, but, so I don't know. But, I mean, I, if there are a stack of Obama books out there and you have credible sort of, you know, readers or historians or whoever, or there are people that, I mean, they don't have to be famous. It could be anybody who just enjoys politics and history, and they want to put my book against a stack of, like, or, you know, it's not against, excuse me, but they want to put my book in a stack of other, uh, you know, reputable Obama books. I mean, that that means everything to me. Uh, you know, I I guess we'll have to wait and see what people say. And and what was the most memorable conversation? Who was the most memorable to you? Oh wow! I mean, there were there were a number of people I really uh, had a delight in speaking with. I I I think um, I really enjoy. There's I mean, there's just too many. But I'll <laughs> say this: um, Gene Sperling and Jack Lew, who were both top economic advisors for uh, President Obama excellent storytellers. And I don't mean that in a cynical way. I mean mm-hmm. that they are genuinely articulate and colorful uh, uh, storytellers in that, um, especially given that what they talk about is economics. So that sounds like such a dry subject, but, but uh, they'll get you fascinated. They'll get you interested in it, you know, in a matter of seconds. Just my opinion. Brian Abrams, the book is Obama, An Oral History, 2009 to 2017. Brian, I thank you so much for spending some time with us. Anytime, Jeff. Thanks so much. Thank you.